everyone. Hi, hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here in dining room studios with Guy Branham. Hello and welcome. Hello. Good to be here. Host of talk show, the game show, Pop Rocket. Yes. The album Effable. Wow. That's a lot of good promotion. Thank you so much. Writer of many television shows. Yes. Um, and guy who mocks people who post a shit ton of pictures of their apartment dogs. Yes, I do have a mean joke about that. <laughs> it mainly just, it made me laugh, although it's me. Uh, well, the thing is, is that um, I am in the uncomfortable situation for an adult man of, I don't care about your stupid cat. I don't care about your stupid dog. Don't listen, Wendy. Uh, I love a good two-year-old, though. Um, I became aware through a different podcast of two writers in New York who regularly post photos of, or videos of their two children um, being idiots. And now I just, it's the best show on television and I love <laughs> it so much. But um, men aren't supposed to like children. We are right. supposed to be cruel to them uh, or just have other better interests. Mm-hmm. So it makes me feel uncomfortable. What are your other interests? Maybe not better. <laughs> well, pop culture is one. In fact, and yes. before before we even, I, I should have started by saying this. It's going to seem like a weird tangent. I have not seen, uh, I have not finished Big Little Lies. And I just, I feel like you're a guy who just might accidentally spoil it. So don't. Okay. I will not say, I'm not, I will try not to spoil it. The thing is, is one of my big pop culture beliefs is like, well, if you didn't want it spoiled, you should have seen it by now. Right. Okay. So I was in a hot tub in Palm Springs. We were talking about the novel Middlesex. And I started to reference a thing that happens in the book. And he was like, hey, 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 no spoilers. And I was like, that that there were race riots in Detroit in the 60s. That's not a spoil. Like, history is not a spoiler. Right. Um, But uh, I will will try to do my best with Big Little Lies. Because how far in are you? Um, Maybe like, how many episodes are there in all? Seven, which is weird. Oh, really? Yeah. (gasps) This is one of those where all of a sudden I'm going to have watched the end and be like, where's the next one? Oh, no, that was the end. I hate when shows do that. I did that. Like with the last episode, I was like, I can't wait for the denouement of that last episode. And then it was like, nope, seven episodes. Yeah, I think I'm on five or six. Okay. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm heading right into the finale. Are you a feud watcher? What is that? Feud on FX. Then no. Oh, okay. What is it? Uh, well, it's your other like signature marquee Sunday night um, venerable actresses like going at each other television program right now. It's the the one that's still going. How have I missed this? Who's in it? Um, It is Jessica Lange and Susan Sarandon playing Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. Oh, yes. Retelling the story of the 1962 Academy Awards. Is it good? Um, It's amazing. I feel I feel wrong that it exists like it is too much to hope there's a tv show that is just about the 1962 best actress race which i maintain is the national origin story of homosexuals uh homosexual men um and it's like one of the things i care most about in life and it just you know it's like between that and then getting to turn on big little lies Every week, it's just, it was too good. It was too good to hope for. Like, these are the prices we pay for a Trump presidency. (laughs) Is it worth it? I don't know. Like, you don't know how many times I've gone through. Like, I have a TV show, but also maybe the world is ending. Mm. And um, I'm like, is this a weird dream that I'm having in 1994? Will I just wake up and, you know, 
be back in a world where I'm closeted and <laughs> we like still have Clintons in the White House. Were you closeted in 94? I was closeted in 94. I was closeted until 99. 99. Okay. And I know you graduated college in 98, right? Yes. So you, wow. So you were not out all through college. No, in at Berkeley, no less. So a place that would have been a, a great place to be gay if you're into dirty guys. Mm. Um, dirty like unkempt? Yeah, I mean, it's Berkeley. Everyone just becomes as dumpy as is humanly possible for four to seven years. Uh, That's also college. I know, but then I one of the nice things about doing stand-up is I get to go and do colleges, and so you have these... I get to go see what the University of Illinois looks like, and I get to go see like a small, not so good liberal arts college in upstate New York, <laughs> and like those kids are having way more fun than we had, right? Um, and a lot of them, and a lot of these schools, like people are sort of like dressing up and putting their best foot forward, and I don't know that I have ever been anywhere as just comfortably dumpy as Berkeley. Though one time, where are you from? Uh, I. Was born in Oakland, grew up in Orange County. Okay. And then I went to college in Claremont, back to Orange County for a little while, lived in New York, and then got back here. So a real California Jew. Like a <laughs> solid like belief in Sephardic pronunciation and nothing else. <laughs> um, but okay. So I went and did this college, this like little liberal arts college in upstate New York, and it was the most fun. It was like there was nothing else in town. There were like two tiny little bars, and they had the most fun all weekend long. And it was great. And then I went back and I went to SUNY Binghamton and I was like, oh, it will be a similar experience. And then the children showed up to my show in their pajamas. And I was like, oh, no, this <laughs> is Berkeley, but for New York. This is very smart kids from Staten Island and Brooklyn who are now living in the woods and are just busy learning and not showering. Mm -hmm. And that's charming. Um, but I was... I spent most of my college years like getting comfortable with myself and doing that. And it was not until I went to law school that I was like unhappy enough that I needed to come out. Right. Where did you grow up? I grew up in rural Northern California, like an hour north of Sacramento. So not a place where there are Jews. What town? Um, it's called Yuba City. Mm, I believe I have heard of it. Yes. It's a horrible place. It is the uh, prune capital of the world. Um, but we were on an almond farm. Do they have like prune pride? Uh, okay, yes. <laughs> how, like, how much does this affect the average life of a Yubasidian? Okay, so there was the prune festival every year, which was a thing that would happen at the fairgrounds, and we did not go. And then they realized that no one likes prunes, so uh, they started calling it the Dried Plum Festival. Mm. And there was a hard attempted rebrand by Sunsweet. Yes. Um, to make prunes into dried plums and then it didn't work and then they just went back to prunes um but a when my like eighth grade class the people who had done well enough on the constitution test to get to go to washington dc we took along little bags of roasted almonds and prunes and everyone wanted the almonds and no one wanted the prunes um and then the other thing is i i grew up in a town where the only factories processed like agricultural products so the first time i saw factories that like w were operating in the winter time i was an adult and was a little bit like oh so that's <laughs> how that works where like everything that we had would just like operate 24 hours a day for six weeks and then like shut down and mm. then your grandma doesn't work there anymore <laughs> why were you guys there oh well um 
the Dust Bowl happened uh, about a hundred years ago. Spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler. So uh, all four of my grandparents, both of my parents are from Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas. And uh, for three of those grandparents, um, it was just because they were regular trash. And my grandmother <laughs> uh, was from uh, a Jewish family that came there to like sell things to that trash mm -hmm. uh, and then were terrible at it and then just sort of went native in Northwest Arkansas. And then the Dust Bowl happened and then they all came up through California. And so my, my town was a weird town full of like all old white men still had a, like a, Southern accents abounded. Like people still talked like it was Arkansas for like a third of the population. And then a third of the population was Mexican because this is California. And then a third of the population were Punjabi Sikhs. Um, because they had their own weird immigrant story. So it was like a, a weird, strangely diverse town that felt like the worst racist Southern town. Mm. What were you like as a kid? Um, I was very, very quiet. Um, and like I was in a corner reading just because if I made noise, someone would explain to me how I was being male wrong. So, um, it was a lot of, wait, you were being what? Being male wrong, that I was just like not performing masculinity the way that I was supposed to. Oh, who were these people explaining this to you? Family members, people in class, teachers. Mm. You know, it was pretty much everyone was like, stop doing that. Right. Uh, and I was like, I will go over here and read. So, you know, I had most of the passions a, uh, a nine-year-old boy in the 80s had. I loved my He-Man and my G.I. Joe and that sort of thing. But I also... Liked a nice book and being left alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned Middlesex earlier, uh, and you, there's a Keats reference in your stand-up. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I like stuff like that. And I, I like that it's now a part of comedy more. Like, there was this website, The Toast, that did a really good job of treating everything you learned in college as pop culture which i feel like didn't happen in in stand-up for a long time mm -hmm. but um yeah i mean i was in that little town and i was always just trying to figure out what was going on outside of it uh and so was very hungry to learn about all of the things that i wasn't supposed to know like i in, in school i got a lot of you don't need to know that and part of me was in this like nascent eight-year-old way, like, this is how they're holding us down. This is why like that my dad and all of the dads I know have to go and either work on a farm or do construction because they don't know these things. I'm going to figure these things out so I can have a job where I don't get dusty every day. Mm -hmm. Do you have siblings? I have one older sister. It's interesting that you. It seems like from a young age you knew there was uh, more beyond Yuba City, and like you wanted out. It's interesting. Yes, I do think that um, there was a very hard sales angle on my mom's part, which is weird because now she's mad at me that I live here and don't live nearby and that sort of thing. But she came with a hard message of like. We are Jews, so we are different, and you will go to college, and you will know things, and you don't have to be scared of things that are different. And there's a small section of the grocery store that is only for us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, it was... Um, and then I also think being gay or what, like, 
nationally unaware sort of gay did make the things that should be comfortable with us about a small town less comfortable for me mm-hmm. um where you know i i don't have great nostalgia for just hanging out with the guys <laughs> because it was always weird yeah when did you realize you were gay well that's a weird thing i mean it's like when did i become aware that men turned me on when my penis started working at around 13 but i couldn't think of that as me being gay because gay people are terrible and horrible and different and weird was that a message that you were getting from your family it's a message i was getting from everywhere i mean the universe is is reinforcing that it was very strange for me as an adult to rewatch eddie murphy's delirious because i remembered watching it as a like relatively small child and it is the thing one of the things that like core made me fall in love with stand-up like he just has such authority and panache and he was so funny and everybody in the room just thought he was the coolest and then i rewatched it and it opens up with eight minutes of how disgusting gay people are and having to accept that like it did both of those things at Mm -hmm. the same time it made me fall in love with this thing that has given me so much and it also contributed to me hating myself and it's one of the reasons that i I take umbrage with sort of these people especially in stand-up thinking that their low-level homophobia is harmless Mm. because it's like, sure, it may not be directly damaging to a adult person who is like able to just like shut it down and get past it, but you're also contributing to people who aren't formed yet trying as hard as they can to avoid being associated with this with homosexuality. So, yeah, I mean, it's like it's a really complex game of. <laughs> There isn't a legal structure for stable relationships. You don't know anybody like this, except you do know three couples like this. But your parents only use slurs to refer to the men. uh, And for the one female couple, just say they're good friends. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, all of those little things that add up to, oh, God, this this weird thing of being like a 10-year-old who's managing on the one hand. We all know I'm this weird, horrible, different thing, and I have to be managing that and avoiding it. But dear God, please don't let me be the official version of it. Mm. Um, That's weird and does take some time. And it's not the worst thing that's ever happened to anybody, but we should make that go away. Did you try to date women? I mean, only in the most gesture of ways like i would invite <laughs> girls to dances at school and i understood that that was how like social structures worked and and everything and i i would but i was also like the least sexually threatening or engaging thing on the planet like <laughs> they were just going out with me because i was a fun friend and then the minute i got to college all gestures in that direction stopped mm-hmm. because i was pretty much just doing it for the pantomime of like high school politics, Mm -hmm. you know? And also because I like going to dances. But you, so you said that it was after college that you came out though. So what, can you talk about that process a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, 
when I got to Berkeley, it was mostly just having access to the real world that was like overwhelming me and being in a space where people weren't saying you don't need to know that. Um, and figuring that out and getting my feet under me and sort of like growing up a little bit and learning how to have friends. Um, friends I actually found interesting and not just who were there. (laughs) Um, And it really was lovely because that coincided with the portion of the 90s where we were starting to engage with like gender and identity and sort of, it just took me five years, four or five years to like get comfortable enough with myself to stop being scared that everything I was doing was wrong because the thing is, is like there are just these people who tell you about the world and you just believe them because they are right 80 to 90% Mm. of the time. Like that light bulb is on because electricity is passing through a filament. Like they told you that, but then they also told you that being gay is horrible and that you're too highfalutin and your voice shouldn't be like that. And you're like, well, that's probably true too. And um, like Berkeley let me chill out and I realized later that like most people who knew me at Berkeley probably thought I was an out gay person until I told them something contrary like I wrote a column for the campus paper and in one of my columns I formally said that I wasn't gay and this was like my senior year at Berkeley and uh, the editorial board at their weekly meeting uh, officially voted to disagree with that statement. <laughs> and it was the most, Sorry. it was at the time so chilling, but was also, let's be honest, one of the nicest things anyone ever did for me, you know, was just sort of say like, stop. Because <laughs> um, it, it, it has to stop at some point in time. And I always feel so sorry for those people who, Poor, poor Clay Aiken. He was like a child. And then he became famous and then had to sort of like figure it out after everyone was already making jokes about ha ha ha, right. look at that idiot. Um, it, it just seems really hard for people who like I always think about what if I had not come out before I started doing stand up? How weird would it be to have to figure those things out while doing material on mm-hmm. stage? Yeah. How do you feel about the fact that people weren't letting, it sounds like weren't, those people around you weren't exactly letting you say you were straight? Because I, on the one hand, I feel like people should be, like, it's, it's not, well, let me, sorry, I'm saying a whole bunch of words. None of them are actual sentences. There's, there's this enormous pressure to like, I suspect this about you. Tell me what you are. Right. And I don't know how I feel about that. On the one hand, I, I believe firmly that everyone should be their authentic self. So I get mm. that on the other hand, it the the momentum and the energy behind this like you are this thing, just admit it. Like I feel like that can be um aggressive. Uh what a weird and good question that most people don't think to ask. The, Thank the, you. The thing is is that most people are simultaneously doing a hard reinforcement of the presumption of heterosexuality while making somewhat cutting jokes behind someone's back about what a fag they are. Um, 
it's hard because people are trying to figure it out for themselves, but they're also figuring it out. They're not figuring it out in a world that isn't a level playing field at all. And it's never going to be a level playing field because the vast majority of people are heterosexual. There's always going to be this presumption of heterosexuality. History is like has been written by and is full of heterosexuality. Um, so it is a hard thing. I mean, the funniest thing is that I dealt with this most while dealing with interns at Chelsea Lately. <laughs> because the thing about an internship at Chelsea Lately is that if you're a boy interning at Chelsea Lately, well, mm. there are probably some facts about you. But also, it is hitting you at a point in time at Pepperdine when you're still probably not ready to have figured that out. And... Yeah. Like, the weird thing for out gay people is, so frequently, we are the scariest to people who are in the closet. And Mm -hmm. I know that because when I was in the closet, they were the scariest to me. Um, Either a representation of everything you don't want to be or the sexiest person on the planet who's so sexy and knows how to be gay and they are so sexy. Uh, So you do kind of just have to, like, wait inside the pool and hope that they can get through all of that cold water and like get comfortable with it. I mean, the best thing that ever happened for me was a friend saying, I know you're not gay, but if you were, it would be okay with me. You know, like that means a lot. And you do have to recognize there are totally effeminate heterosexual men. There are heterosexual men and women who just love attention. And that's why they're flirty with everyone or whatever. And like, um, except that nerd <laughs> and like, just because you know, your story doesn't mean, you know, other people's stories, but I, knowing how to be helpful to closeted people is like the hardest thing. I'm good. Once somebody comes out, once somebody comes out, I'm like, all right, we can have a plan now. Mm-hmm. Do you, do people come to you asking for advice often? Well, I'm very pushy with my advice. <laughs> um, and yeah, like, um, when, when somebody you know, the the people who have sort of, like, come out to me earlier in the process, like, I've always tried to be like, well, I'm here as a resource for you. Um, and, you know, it, it is a hard thing of, of realizing, like, it's going to take steps. It's going to take work. It's never going – it's not like heterosexuality. It's different. Like, we have to find places to find each other. You can't just – assume that the supermarket is going to take care of you or the laundromat unless you're in West Hollywood. And that itself (laughs) is a choice, you know? Um, And straight people are just so ready to say, well, why can't you just do it like straight people do it like normal. And to say that the way that we are doing things is like seedy or weird. And the thing is, is what is, what is that? When someone says, why can't you just do it like straight people? What does that mean? Well, like what they're saying is like, you don't have to go to gay bars. Like, mm. you don't have to go to gay bars. You can just do it like everybody else. Or like, uh, you, I mean, I'm talking more from... Like how you meet people? Early. Yeah. And and this is more, this is more like my, my scar tissue from like the 2000s and stuff. People have gotten a lot better about it. But, you know, why do you have to go to gay bars? Or like, why do you, you know, using gay apps and... and that sort of thing. Now everyone is using Tinder, mm-hmm. but there's also an awareness of like, 
we don't use Tinder today. Like it's not, it's not like it used to be where these apps wouldn't allow us. Now they do, but they still sort of aren't built for us. Like they're built for Bumble is built to make women feel comfortable. Um, and like gay guys want to feel somewhat uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, like it's so funny talking about, uh, I was at a show recently in Akbar, and two straight comics got up and they were telling jokes about Tinder and how sort of like aggressive and invasive it is. And it's like, we don't use Tinder because it's not aggressive or invasive enough. You know, <laughs> like every time I've used Tinder, it, f- it felt like the warmest and loveliest thing to know that every, like, I had I had to match people before we could say hello and people were expressing interest where like, you know, uh, Scruff and Grinder are, you know, uh, more adversarial places. <laughs> okay, I've never heard of Scruff. I've also never heard of Bumble. I've been out of the oh. game for too long. How long have you been married? I've been married since 2014 and we've been together for six years. So Wendy did officiate or participate in the wedding in some way? <laughs> no, no. Oh, are you, are you asking about that photo? Yes. That was our dog before Wendy. Oh, okay. Yeah, we had another cavalier. That's Oliver. Um, no, Wendy, Wendy, uh, was, let's see, I guess we've been, we got her in 2015. So yeah. One of my big assertions about why we haven't seen uh, dating apps in romantic comedies yet is that most of the people who can greenlight films have been in stable relationships mm. since uh, before they became ubiquitous. I got in a big fight with NPR's uh, Linda Holmes about that. Uh, she has other theories. What's her theory? Her theory is that um, rom-coms rest on the idea that you aren't looking for people and the volition involved in being on a dating app um, gets in the way of it being a rom-com. Oh, that's interesting. But usually there is one person who's desperately looking for someone. I mean, well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, Allison. okay. That's what I'm, I'm with, saying. Guy, I'm with you. <laughs> um, You know what dating app I'm ob- obsessed from afar with, though, is what? Raya. Oh. Are you on why? it? I am not on it. Okay. Um, for the list, well, listeners, my regular listeners have heard me talk about it before. It's this dating app that you have to be a celebrity to be on, uh-huh. I guess. Um, it's just the exclusivity of it makes me go, fuck, I wish I could see if I could get on it. <laughs> um, that seems vaguely distasteful to me. Um, and there's also the problem of like, I already know who all of the famous gay people are. And. <laughs> I'm not looking to date them, right? Because and like all of the the truly hot people either have not achieved what they are going to achieve in life, or are just busy making themselves hot. And those are like you have to, Is, en- and that's what you're into. Engage with the common people. I have no idea what I'm into. Um, I that's a nice idea. Also, just. It is so hard to reduce to um, like an application or something like that all of the ineffabilities that make somebody somebody you can be around that much, you know? And then there are times on like OkCupid or whatever where I am like, oh, this seems like an interesting person. Um, but generally, I tend not to have significant relationships with the people i have sex with if Mm. that makes sense to you yes it does yeah i do you sorry go ahead 
I resent the notion that the primary relationships in my life should be those I jizz on. <laughs> um, like I, uh, or who jizz on me. Um, yeah. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that I have much to talk to them with about. And also I'm a very, you've listened to my album, which is very, very kind of you. But one of the, th- the jokes I make on there is, um, I say I am a unique boutique product. I'm mm-hmm. the sexual equivalent of a left-handed oyster shucking glove. I'm not for everyone. And the thing is, is that like I am both boutique in a personality sense and boutique in a physical and sexual sense. And so I have to respect that like there's not going to be a huge amount of overlap in those things. If I find it, I will be very excited for it. That's what I was going to ask. I was going to say, are you happy with the situation where the, your that your primary relationships are not your sexual relationships, or are you looking to combine it all? I mean, it would be nice to combine it all. I do think I am very skittish about that because um, I grew up in a world where I wasn't thinking towards that. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it just there, we didn't even have sort of like ideation of um, significant gay, gay male relationships. And it's a hard thing of being like, how much of this is me being screwed up by the world? How much of this is me trying to fit myself into heteronormative structures that aren't for me, you know, and I'm not going to solve all of those problems. I'm just trying to make late night a little more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's, it's like, it is hard. I mean, you are a woman. Um, Thank you. You you are somebody with uh, a rich and successful career who also has a family and has way more opportunities now than you would have had in 1985 or 1965 um, or 1915. And part of you, I'm sure is constantly mad at yourself that you're not doing all of those things the best. And is certain if you were a different person, you would be able to without looking around and realizing, Oh, nobody knows how this is supposed to work yet because in historical sense, like (laughs) I always feel like women, around your age are in the worst situation of having culture tell you everything is possible while having men around you who are still living in the worlds where they are allowed to dismiss you, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And that thing of like um, the world isn't caught up to maybe what you're ready for. Right. Um, And I think when it comes to me and relationships, I, I'm like, well, I have to accept that this is a transitional time. It's way better than it's ever been for people like me, um, but it ain't fixed. And I, I don't, like, I don't have to be fixed. Um, and some people are better at that stuff than me. Okay, um, my friend Casey, who's also on Talk Show the Game Show, he's one of the judges on Talk Show the Game Show. But he was my PA on the first job where I wor- uh, that I worked on in LA, and he like three years four years after i met him came out of the closet to me um and he went on two dates got into a four-year-long relationship broke up went on another date and has been in a relationship with that guy for four and a half years and part of me is like fuck that like you know like how dare he not know how to be gay and then come out and immediately be wonderful at relationships um but everybody has their skill set. Mm. Well, that's really interesting. This idea that 
it might actually have nothing to do with heterosexual, homosexual, and more just be about you vis-a-vis relationships. And I think I used vis-a-vis wrong, and I wish I hadn't used it. But yeah, like how do you feel about relationships, your your ability to have relationships? Well, I mean, the two things are, they are inextricably linked. I mean, to some extent, like, I... I do think I just grew up with people not getting me enough that my presumption that like I, my presumption is if I have to spend more than four hours around someone, it's going to be terrible, you know, for them or for you, um, for both of us. Um, and then what I have when I am around people and it's wonderful, I'm like, Oh God, you know, what's this is, you know, what could this be? Um, but yeah, I I also do wonder if it is just like me, you know. Mm-hmm. This feels like the wrong time to ask about your show <laughs> because I feel like we just hit like an emotional thing, and I'm like, and now tell me about talk show, the game show. No, it's um, it's perfect because talk show, the game show, really is about the kind of social interaction that I am most comfortable with, which is people being charming and engaging and a little bit drunk and having a good time while I may. Okay. I will totally be awkward about, I have to spend four hours in a car with one to three people, but I am never scared of a party because mm-hmm. God damn it. I love a party and it's a good time. And if you're not having a good time at a party, it's your own damn fault. With summer exceptions. Um, but yeah, Talk Show the Game Show, uh, in its way, started out as a silly idea I had on a long van ride to uh, a quiz bowl tournament in the Midwest. Um, and then s- with some elements of my annual Hanukkah party, which isn't annual anymore. I haven't had it for several years. Mm. But at my Hanukkah party, I used to... Um, I used to have a small talk competition where people were forced to engage in 90 seconds of small talk with a stranger from a subject taken from a hat (laughs) and then would be evaluated by a fabulous panel of judges. And what were they evaluated on? Oh, I mean, it was like, it just needed to feel like small talk. It needed to feel effortless and smooth and like nobody was, it needed to feel not performative. It needed to feel like, an actual conversation. One of the greatest moves of all time in small talk competition um, was the topic pulled was biomedical engineering. <laughs> and this guy, Nate, started talking because his dad was a respected healthcare attorney. And he said something, uh, my dad works in DC. And then my friend Casey said, I'm from Silver Springs, Maryland. <laughs> and then <laughs> just completely took the conversation off in that direction. And it was beautiful because that's how conversations go. Um, and so talk show, the game show, it's a three guest talk show like Fallon or Colbert. Um, and they come out for three minutes, they're interviewed. And during that interview, they score points by doing the sorts of things you're supposed to do on a talk show, name dropping, telling an anecdote, lying about or obscuring their age. Um, getting a laugh. Yes. Getting a laugh is one point. Uh, mentioning international travel is two points. Um, (laughs) And then afterwards, they are evaluated by a fabulous panel of judges, including Casey Schreiner, that gay guy who is always in a relationship, uh, and Karen Kilgariff, who has more Emmys than God. <laughs> um, God hasn't performed as well as the, at mm-hmm. the Emmys as I would like. A lot of Grammys, though. Um, so, yeah. And then there's a lightning round at the end, and we play some games along the way. But it was just... Uh, 
it it was all of the things I love most in one place. So it was a live show I did for like four years um, just because it was fun and people liked it. And then finally it became a TV show. And the period when we were shooting really was the most ridiculously love lovely work experience I've ever had of like, no guy, you do need to have a drink in the middle of the day. <laughs> like <laughs> you need to be smooth and ready to go. Um, <laughs> And people showing up in party dresses and look, you know, looking cute and ready to have a good time. Mm-hmm. How how many weeks did you record all the episodes over? Um, we shot sixteen episodes in two weeks. Wow. Yes. So wow. it's a little bit silly that like some episodes were recorded in January will be airing months later, mm-hmm. but that's true TV. And you were able to appreciate it all at the time as opposed to just feeling like this is crazy and intense and I feel disconnected from it. I've just injected myself into your life. Are we ever able to properly appreciate the things that are going on? Like I have a base level of fear and uncertainty with anything that I'm doing. And so the whole time I was there, I was like, oh, these have been good, but will the next week be good? And, you know that kind of fear and uncertainties with the things that are going on. But also there is something nice about having been on TV shows or radio shows or whatever long enough that you just understand the rhythm and are able to sort of like appreciate. And then we do this and then we do this and then we do this. Um, And it, it was ridiculous fun. And there was something important about, I'm not young. I'm not a 25 year old who is getting these opportunities. But the cool thing about being older is that I have seen enough people (laughs) have shows and be screwed up in their heads or just get caught up in things. So I did try to sort of like respect, like, even if this is the only time you get to do this, it was wonderful that you got to do it. Mm -hmm. And this was so much fun and love and appreciate that. And when you go back to writing on somebody else's show, you'll always have this in your heart. You know, what was the process of turning it from a live show to a TV show? I mean, when we invited networks to come and see it, like I had a really hard time getting people to pay attention to it because it was kind of a bit too much concept and they didn't understand. Um, and also, to some extent, uh, Los Angeles has never seen me as a particularly bankable thing, which is interesting because I've always been making good money doing stuff. Mm-hmm. But like, they like nice, cute boys who look like they would, they would be good at hosting things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so my my agents never really, like, did anything about it. So finally, I just invited Wanda Sykes' producing partner to come be a judge at one of the shows because I knew she would be funny and great. And if that was it, that was it. But also, she came and saw it and was like, this is a show. And then... Uh, did you feel like you pushed her towards that? or? I mean, the thing is, is I was like... Everyone who comes to the show has a good time. I'll just do that. And I didn't know if it was too much or if it was too pushy. But also, like, one of the things about... I've been in this town long enough to understand sometimes you got to make stuff happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and So that was a bit of strategery. Absolutely. Uh, and then she was like, this is a show. Let's make it. And it was one of the worst shows we had ever had, but it was still good. <laughs> um, How frequently did you do the live show? Monthly. And was it at mm, started at the ACB? Im- started at the Improv and then was at Nerdist. And for a year I did it in New York because I had a job there. Okay. Um, and then sh- like she and Wanda invited networks to come. And when True came, they were just like, this is a show. Like other people were like, 
we want to futz with this or whatever. And True was just like, this is a show. And we made it. And they definitely had things, you know, we were adapting a like hour long live show into a half hour TV show. And there were totally some things that they were like, we need to tweak this. But they were so minimal compared to to other places. And they really, the whole time there was a sense that they respected the show itself and that like nobody knew the show better than me and so like we're trying to to do the best job possible of creating on tv the kind of experience i had created in the live show um can you give an example of like what some of the minor tweaks that they wanted to make were well the the open of the show was monologue you know introduction of the judges explanation of the show all of that um and that was basically time and time that wasn't directly explaining what the show was. So we ended up most of our writing period for the TV show was trying to figure out what to do with those first 90 seconds. Mm. And we ended up um, changing it to the guests coming out on a rotating platform uh, and answering a trivia question to uh, give them an advantage in the game. Um, And that was, mainly just trying to give people a game showy feel from the top because what I did really had four to five minutes of just talk showiness and explanation before you ever got into any game showiness. And then the the only other major major change that was um, made was adding like up off the couch bonus games um, after everybody's interview, which uh, we did before true was even involved. Like, when we were doing a pilot presentation for True, that was something that Wanda and Paige Hurwitz added just because you need people to get up off of the couch. It can't just be people talking. Though I am a person who would just love a show that was people talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it also used to be three judges and we had to cut it down to two because it's a half hour and people can only deal with so many people on television. Right. It's so interesting. I mean, there's two different directions my brain wants to go. Um so hopefully I'll remember what the other one was when I ask you this. What is your relationship to talk shows? I love talk shows. Um, they were like this weird sophistication that happened late at night after my parents were asleep. And it just seemed cool. Like you found out about such cool things and you got to see celebrities being themselves kind of. Uh, like when I was very young, um, there was one summer when Joan Rivers was guest hosting for Johnny mm. and I would watch that every night. And I was just like, she's the funniest and the best. Um, and then there came a point in the nineties. Like I remember watching a Schwarzenegger being interviewed on Leno, where I was just like, nothing is happening here. <laughs> like he is just recounting the things that he knows he has to recount to a person who's not going to challenge him in any way. I am bored to tears. Mm. And that was sort of the origin of me feeling like there needs to be a test of skill here. Because in my head, it was always, as with Top or uh, Iron Chef, like <laughs> the people who truly believed that they were good at this would step forward and say, I challenge. Um, you know, and, and I, the magic of like when a Julia Roberts would go on Letterman. Um, of knowing like she's going to be on and alive and she's going to be challenging him and pushing at him um, and also flirting with him 
Like, that was wonderful. And I just love that. And how do you feel about game shows? Um, again, an ent- like a different day part. Like, um, the magic of getting to stay home sick and like watch a couple of bewitched. Yes. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, you got your pyramid. Uh, and it was a cool situation where you got to see if celebrities were smart. You got a different class of celebrity. You got those like rank and file sitcom people who were sometimes third guests on talk shows. Um, uh, I used to have, look, I invented a lot of games in my days, but at one point in time, I had a game called Second Guest, where you would give somebody <laughs> a talk show in a year, and then they had to say who the second guest was. Um, but for, for talk shows, they, or for game shows, I liked the fun and engagement. Like, I did Quiz Bowl through college, and even when I was in law school. So, like, I always loved buzzers and proving yourself and, like, getting stuff right like that was all really fun and And structure sounds like yeah i like i i feel like some gay men become obsessed with sort of like the structure of social interaction because it's always been a little less natural for us so you Mm -hmm. had to figure out what the structures were and then you get very good at knowing what the structures are um yeah it's just 80s game shows had such amazingly horrible carpet. And <laughs> they really did. The hair of those hosts. And it was just like such a wonderful, fun place. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm wondering is to win at Talk Show, the game show, all the things that you get points in, are those things that you, Guy Branham, believe make for a great talk show outing? or talk show appearance, or are they things that are like you promoted yourself? You like, do they make for an exhilarating viewing experience or is it just like you crushed the talk show thing? Okay. So the thing is, is there's work to be done on a talk show. We all respect that these things only exist so that people can promote their movies or let you know what's going on with their album. And so the points that you score during your interview, when Casey Schreiner, lead judge, is ringing a bell and saying, Blood Project, two points. Those are the things that you need to be doing. And some people come on and like artless assholes just say a bunch of celebrities' names like that's supposed to be right. And the thing is, is... Casey should more frequently not give people name drop points if they're not people that they actually know or if they're just doing it in an artificial way. That's to his discretion. But then you do have those two judges. And what they are saying essentially is, was this a beautiful interview? Was this artfully done? Mm. Because the best talk show interviews are when people do plug and tell a fun little story about what they and George Clooney were doing on the set of the show. (laughs) And then a little bit talk about how they've been getting into juicing and it's crazy. Um, And at the, you know, mention a charity along the way. So that it's like understanding it is self aggrandizing, but how flawless and effortless can you make that self aggrandizing? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why, it is really important. We we did have a little bit of back and forth with um, the network about whether both judges got to give scores or this or that. And I was just like, it's no, you need, you need more points that are essentially saying, was this good or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to ask, but I feel like you already kind of addressed it was I was, I was thinking about with you having turned small talk into a contest, like you've been 
what you were saying about sort of being interested in the structure of social interaction. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I I like literalizing things. I like sort of like underlining the unspoken stuff that we all know is going on. And sometimes that is deeply annoying for my friends. Like um, I am in a couple of days going to have my Passover Seder, which is, a taxing and excruciating experience, but also if you're my friend, you should love it. Like it is a lot of, uh, I demand that you ask a moderately invasive question of someone else at the table, that sort of thing. (laughs) Um, you know, just sort of like celebrating the things we know are going to happen anyway. Um, yeah. Um, I love that kind of stuff, though, because I relate. But do you think that comes from feeling like an outsider? Absolutely. And it feels like it comes from looking at all of these things with with distance, being mm-hmm. an outsider. You know, a little bit like, how does that work? Um, but enjoying them? Just because you're an outsider doesn't mean you don't think things are great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that because I feel like it's it's... It's on the one hand saying, let's be able to laugh at ourselves and recognize how we actually act. Uh-huh. But then on the other hand, I guess there is like a sadness in it because it is like, sorry, I'm so all over the place. I'm going in a lot of different directions. But I guess that the dream of being so integrated in the moment that you don't have an awareness of what is coming before and after, like, I don't know that anyone truly lives that way, but this is kind of the opposite of that. I don't know about that because it is, I would say most of the games I create are about forcing you to be in the moment in the most significant way possible. That's true. Cause if there's an element of competition, then you really have to be focused yeah. and present. Like a Passover. I don't let people take photographs or anything like that. Like it's about you showing up and us being together. Parties are about, I don't like taking photographs. I like being at parties. I like being in the thing. And also, the the whole, there's an element of sadness to it, A. There's an element of sadness to everything. Yeah. You're going to die one day. Like, um, I'm going to die. It's going to be terrible. That's always floating around. Let's get used to it. And also, there is sadness that comes with being too immersed in things. Mm-hmm. There is sadness that comes with being too comfortable with just the way things are. And By the way, I see beautiful sadness in everything, though. So <laughs> I hope you don't feel like I, I was not judging oh. your endeavor at no, all. No, not at all, Allison. I was I, just I, uh, I, appreciating the poetry of it. I was just coming back with a hard take. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I, I, I respect entirely. I'm having a great time. Uh, <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> but like, I, the gentle sense of distance that means I don't feel as at home in my hometown as the other people I grew up with given me so many things and so many opportunities to explore other stuff and that's cool like different ways of seeing the world are cool so you went to law school i did Did you finish law school i did are you a lawyer i passed the bar but i do not have a bar membership currently because i have not done continuing legal education so the dream at one point was to be a lawyer, though, because otherwise that's a lot of schooling if that was not what you were into. Uh, the dream was to make my mother happy. Mm. Uh, and I was doing that. And I, it was very good for me because if I had gone into entertainment without 
going to graduate school, I would have spent the entire time saying, guy, you're wasting your skills. You should have gone to, you know, graduate school or professional school of some sort. Um, and there was something nice about realizing, like, this is not the path for you. Before I started on this path, that was really good. And it was a horrible and expensive way of figuring, <laughs> of, like, figuring that out. And also, like, I gained a skill set. It gave me a cruel and organized mind that has been invaluable to me in stand-up. Um, and it was a weird way of going about it. But there are a lot of, like, good stand-ups who went to law school or were lawyers. Dimitri Martin, Greg Giraldo. Um, yeah, it's... It was helpful. I, I am a little sad that I never, um, like, argued a case or anything. But it's more fun to be a hobbyist who knows a lot about the law. When I see the lives of the actual lives of my friends who are lawyers, Mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh, thank God I don't have to do that. And the sheer number of people who went to law school with me who now have like segued into being a lobbyist or something else is significant. And I have to realize like that also could have happened to me. Mm -hmm. Had you started doing stand up? While you were in law school? Okay. So my first taste of like creative satisfaction was that column for the campus paper. And then the second half of my senior year at Berkeley, I started like barely dipping my toe in. Um, and I was still closeted then. Um, but I was like scared and felt like it was wrong. Uh, and then I went to law school for three years, did no stand up while I was there. And then by the end of it was like, that's where I like my hunger to get back to an open mic in San Francisco was so significant by the time I got back, that it was really all I wanted. And I had gone to sort of like a sad enough place with the course of my life that I was just so happy to get to do it that I was able to sort of like go through all of the indignities that have to go along with starting stand-up. It's terrible. Like if you start stand-up and it's not terrible for two years, something's going wrong. <laughs> like the people who are famous enough or uh, established enough in their own lives before they start stand-up that it goes well when they start stand-up are never going to be really good stand-ups. Like you kind of have to, you have to learn to manage the really hard parts and anyone who can avoid those will. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The really hard parts of the dynamic of performing in a comedy club or like of the lifestyle? Of performing in a comedy club, of being up in front of those people and like really needing them to like you and having no tool to get them to like you except for having funny jokes and funny performance. Like if you're nice and likable, if you're, if your smile does the job, why would you ever write a joke for that? <laughs> like if the fact that they've already seen you on a TV show works, then why on earth would you come up with good material? And like, the wonderful thing about stand-up is that it forces this nexus of being in the moment and being super prepared mm-hmm. um, that is hard to achieve and a lot of people don't achieve, but is clearly something that I am passionate about. And you have a ton of experience writing for TV shows, too. So were you doing stand-up and then did you... Like, how did that all happen? So while I was in San Francisco, um, a couple of comics moved up from Los Angeles to work at a small cable network that was based there. It was about technology, and that's why it was in San Francisco. And one of them uh, told me about a job at the network, and I applied for it, and I got it. What was the network? It was called Tech TV. And then it got 
bought by Comcast, who merged it with G4. They fired two-thirds of the people, and then they moved a third of them down to Los Angeles. And that was how I came here. And from there, I went to Chelsea Lately. And were you writing on a show? I was writing on a show. I started out as a web writer, and then... What was the show? It was called Unscrewed with Martin Sargent. It was a late-night talk show about technology. So was like a wonderful idea that was doing so many things that are ne- like were later done by like Tosh.0 mm-hmm. and the soup and stuff but like people just weren't ready for it then and it also didn't have the budget to be a good comedy show um and then they like they hired me as a web writer fired me rehired me as a writer for the show that show got canceled i got rehired as a writer for another show that show got canceled and i got rehired as head writer of another show and then uh I got pissed at that show. Like the G4 network basically got to a point in time where they weren't excited about having a, like a very out gay guy being all out and gay mm. all the time. Um, and so I jumped from there to Chelsea lately at E. But um, wait, so the G4 network was getting, but you were behind the scenes at that point, right? But I, but they put me on camp. Like they started out putting like, before I was a writer, I was doing little things on camera and okay. I like kept doing that. And then there just came a point in time where it was like, we don't put guy on camera anymore. And that like frustrated me because it was like, I'm writing all the jokes that all of these other people are saying, you clearly like what I can do. And it was, it was a wonderful challenge to have like my first three years writing for television. I was writing jokes for 15 year old boys. I was writing jokes about sports and video games and that kind of stuff. And so, uh, like, I always knew that I wasn't just somebody who could write a good Rihanna joke, you know? <laughs> um, so then I went to Chelsea Lately for three years. As a writer? As a writer. And it was like a year before, like, they didn't know that I was a stand-up when I went there. And that kind of, like, frustrated me. Um, and so I had When to- was this that you went there? 2007. Um, and so I, but she was putting me on camera from the beginning for like sketches and stuff. Um, and then I eventually got to do panel. Uh, and then after that, I wrote for a bunch of shows, fashion police, punked, awkward on MTV, uh, another period. Yeah. Mindy show, right? Uh, the Mindy project. Yeah. Mindy project. Mindy show. Yes. Uh, I, I still write for that. I'm going back in a month. Hmm. Oh, was that? No, so you mentioned that you did the show in New York. Uh-huh. Oh, that was Totally Biased with W. Well, two shows in New York. Uh, totally Biased with W. Come Out Bell. Uh, I did that for a year. And then I've also written on most seasons of Billy on the Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What was your experience on Chelsea Lately like? It was wonderful. I mean, it was the show where I first felt successful. Like, before that, I had jobs that were paying my rent while I struggled at stand-up. And this was a show that like made people know who I was. It paid me a lot more money. Um, and also it was very much a family. Like, and with the good and the bad. Like most people on that show came from families with lots of children. And it was sort of the management structure of that show of like people will fight with each other and people will say harsh things, but we will also get drunk together and have a good time. And she was so magnificently generous. It was a situation of like, she was taking us to Mexico all the time. She never knew how to shop for me. So for my birthday <laughs> would just like, she came in one time and was like, I don't know what to get you. Here's $500. And it was like, thank you. Um, 
so it was it was me getting to feel like my career was going well for the first time and also I, it was a, a daily show and there's just something so lovely about having to wake up and be as funny as you can with your friends from 9:30 until 11 and then go make the show happen for the rest of the day um and it was a, a very well-run show so i also gave me a high like bar for show organization like mm-hmm. the the first showrunner of that short show corin nelson just like got that show on such good rails that it ran on them for four years after she left uh and like when i've been on other shows where you're there until 11 30 and expected to write another show the next day i'm like no you should <laughs> this is not how this works and i have been on shows that that show us if everything starts on time and we have all the meetings we need to have things can run smoothly mm-hmm. are you still friends with chelsea um we're in a weird place i i, I mean we're in a good place like there was a long time when we didn't talk to each other. She was mad about me leaving. Um, but she came and did talk show the game show. She has been, she had me on her, her Netflix show. Like she has always been kind and astoundingly supportive in so many ways. She's not always been astoundingly supportive, but um, <laughs> she is uh, uh, astoundingly supportive. And I have such regard for her. Like she has broken a lot of boundaries that she does not get respect for. Mm-hmm. Why did you leave? Um, it is a complex story. I mean, it's a lot of things coming together. Uh, the shortest answer is office politics. Um, it was me having to, an opportunity to do something else and being told that I should quit to go do this other thing that wasn't a particularly great opportunity uh, and her getting pissed off that I was even thinking about it. Um, And then one day I was late. (laughs) You know, it was a lot of things together, but it was kind of me being a little bit drunk on success and thinking that I could go off and do other better things. uh, And that show being drunk on success and thinking, Oh, screw this guy. If he thinks he can do other things. Mm. Um, yeah. Who was telling you that you should quit to do the other opportunity? Oh, my managers. Um, so it was like rough and weird. And then she, and she got very, very mad. Um, and we worked through it. I mean, that's the thing about, that's the thing about Chelsea lately, as opposed to other shows is like, it, it does feel like family in in the bad ways and the good ways where like other people I have professional relationships with and things would never go as bad. There's that, but there's also the fact that like, I love those people, you know, in a way that I don't necessarily love every coworker I've ever had. What was the other opportunity? Oh, it was, I had a show that I was selling to MTV and I didn't understand that selling a show doesn't mean anything and it probably won't get made. And my managers who were producers on the show mm. were scared that she would also want to be a producer on the show and were trying to get me to like sever connections there. Uh, and it happened in sort of the worst possible way. And what happened to that show? Oh, it never happened. It's, this is Los Angeles. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was stupid but also i've had so many lovely opportunities i've had so many bad times and so many lovely opportunities that happened because 
I left the stability of that show and was pretty unstable for like two years afterwards. Do you regret it? No. Have I regretted it? You know, in 2011 and 12, I was full of regret for it. Um, But one of the things I knew was that if I kept being at this place that was paying me good money and was making gay guys know who I was and letting me feel famous and all of that, that I probably wouldn't continue to push myself to Mm -hmm. do better stuff. I needed to go work on other stuff. It was not the fullness of what I can do. Right. And when you were regretting it, could you have gone back or was that bridge burned? That bridge was burned. Gotcha. That's pretty amazing then that you guys are on good terms now. Yes. I mean, it speaks so much to who she is that she really like, she thinks about other people, you know? And it's like being famous is weird and it does skew the way you, you see the world, but she is aware of other people and, and a thoughtful human being and somebody who respects me, I think, and whom I respect greatly. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. She's come up a lot as I've never had her on this show, but I've had a lot of people who know her on the show, uh-huh. like a very uh, polarizing figure. Absolutely. And I mean, that's the game she plays like, uh, she, but she, she didn't show up to be nice, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and we so frequently expect that of women. Um, and she's been on a journey and will continue to be on a journey. Uh, but I, at the end of the day, must respect that I would not be here or have the opportunities that I've had if it weren't for those three years. Allison, can I tell you a story? Please do. Okay. We were at the writer's room uh, table for Chelsea lately. And one of uh, my colleagues who had started a little bit after me and who was sort of a more successful stand-up around town than I was, said that she was going to be doing a set on Craig Ferguson. And I had that like standard comic jealousy moment of just sort of like my face fell because somebody else was getting something and I was reminded of how much I had not been paying attention to my stand-up career and got mad at myself. And then I immediately tried to pull it back together because it's like, this is your friend. You want to be happy for this person. Don't be petty. Don't be an asshole. And it was a moment. And I said something to my writing partner about, didn't basically she was like oh i didn't notice like it wasn't it was barely a moment it was barely a moment uh and then later that day chelsea handler came into my office and said are you ready to do the round table and i had never done the round table before mm-hmm. and it was that thing of like that is really thoughtful with a lot of things going on she was sensitive to that and you know um She's not the nicest person, but she's a kind person in many mm-hmm. ways. That makes sense. Let's do just mirror everyone. Uh, but first, oh wait, no, got man, we got too much to do okay. in a short amount of time. Understandable. Well, this is what I'll do first. I'll say, hey, you guys, if you're going to buy something on Amazon, click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It helps out the show. Thank you so much for all of your Amazon support. Also, I'm on Patreon. Um, it's patreon.com slash alisonrosen. Patreon is sort of like Kickstarter and that you can support artists, podcasters on an ongoing monthly basis. There's different reward levels. So you can get extra bonus episodes a month. Um, you can get... 
access to an exclusive interactive live stream. There's a level where you get merchandise in the mail, all sorts of fun stuff. Check that out. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. Well, I was going to take questions from listeners. Let's just do that. Well, let's do it fast because there's only, only a few that I thought were good enough. When we ask, we send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Okay, Emily Beal says, if it's not too late, it's not. How much did you prepare for your pie versus cake debate on CISO? Oh, it was very exciting. Great question. Um, this was on the show, uh, I think it's called The Great Debaters. Uh, it is uh, a live or a TV version of the live show Uptown Showdown, which I love so much. Um, I probably spent like three days prepping that, and that's mostly just because they had a producer harassing me the whole time. But um, this is the show where you like debate a point, and it's like the comedy show where I most get to use like lawyering mm-hmm. skills and stuff. And I love doing that show every time, and I was really proud of the work upon an intro line I did there. And, and, uh, which one did you come out in favor of? Okay, we were pro pie, which it was terrible because I'm a cake person myself, and I had to stand up for the the other side. Um, but uh, I I did my best, uh, and Brian McCann, the head writer of that show, uh, really helped me out at the last minute with a couple of great points. Good, and um, I just need to say as a PSA to anyone listening. Although the people who do this probably aren't listening. When I say, hey, I'm going to have someone's on the show, tweet questions. Uh, and I'll ask the person, when you write back, and if I, if I say, like, tw- got questions for Guy Branham, tweet me questions. Then you write back, who is Guy Branham? You're being hacky. You're being predictable. And go fuck yourself. I'm just tired. It's, like, predictable. I always get one of those, and I'm yes. just tired of it. Uh, the answer is an overweight homosexual Jew. We have something to say to those people. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. <laughs> It'd be funny if no matter who my guest is, they just wrote back who was Guy Branham. <laughs> that I could get behind. Yes. Because that's creative. Yes. Okay. So what happened with you and Joe Rogan? Because a few people wanted to ask uh, about this. Oh, I saw a video of him talking to Gavin McInnes about homosexuality. or I forget what the context. Oh, they were talking about Milo Yiannopoulos. Mm. Uh, and I, po- wow. I posted a video. They just... Uh, the things that they said, like, uh, they said, how many gay people do you think are gay because they were molested? Uh, and they said some other stuff. And so I posted the video and I was like, uh, here's Joe Rogan explaining what's wrong with homosexuality. And that he was very emphatic that I was mischaracterizing things and only doing it for attention for myself. The thing is, is I have so much respect for Joe Rogan. I think he's a great comic, but also if I see stuff, it's not that I have a problem with him. It's that I have a problem with a world that sort of like keeps restating creepy and inappropriate stuff mm-hmm. about gay people. And so I do it to many people like, but there was this construction that I was calling him out or being terrible to Joe. Uh, when it is like, I'm just, this whole world has told me to be quiet and know my place. I'm not going to do that. Like we're just at a point in time where I'm not going to do that. And so, (laughs) uh, if you say something like that, or you start casting aspersions on, uh, George, Takai's first sexual experience, which he, he says was very positive and wonderful. 
I'm going to tell you, shut up. And that doesn't mean I think that you're a bigot or terrible. It doesn't mean that I don't like you as a person. One of the horrible things about being gay is you're not allowed to hate the people who are most offensive and discriminatory to you because they're usually your family. Mm -hmm. You have to learn how to deal with a world where they can both be a person who you love and respect and is saying something that is, you know, is wrong. Um, And this is my experience. So... I don't need two straight guys to tell me how it works. Did Joe say that you were mischaracterizing him? Like, was was there a back and forth? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is he was in the end sort of like... He he resolved it amicably and tried to do that. He very much thought that I was mischaracterizing it by saying... um, here's Joe explaining what's wrong with homosexuality and was emphatic in his argument uh, that homosexuality can be caused by molestation. Um, I think that that's bullshit um, and is a really problematic thing to say. Mm -hmm. Okay. B. Slammon says, what is your most memorable behind the scenes celeb encounter or other memorable behind the scenes celeb celeb encounter or otherwise on Chelsea lately? Um, I saw this on Twitter uh, and like tried to think about it a lot. I think probably the best moment was all of the writers who were comics were driving to this comedy special we were doing for E! called The Comedians of Chelsea Lately. And Sarah Colonna, who's a very talented comedian, it was the day like we found out that Michael Jackson had died. And she was like, oh my God, in somebody's intro reel, they have a mean joke about Michael Jackson. Oh, that's And it was like one of those things where she both thought it was hilarious and was like sad for the person. And then she realized it was her. <laughs> and <laughs> it was hilarious having her be like, oh, that's so funny. One of you is screwed. And then it's like, oh, no, fuck, I'm screwed. <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, I have to say before when I said we only have a few questions because only if, whatever I said about how only a few of them are good enough to make it through. I was kidding because now I feel bad. I feel like I accidentally probably hurt the other four people's feelings. <laughs> um, they were all wonderful questions. We just only had time for a few. Okay, let's do Just Mirror Everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me? Or everyone. Okay, this is where people write in with things they think or they do, and they wonder, is it just me, or is it everyone? And we say whether we also do these things. Okay, Sarah says, just mirror everyone. Filled with white-hot rage when the person in front of me in traffic washes their windshield. Hashtag just washed my car. I, I must admit, I only realized this was the thing that pissed people off within the last couple of years. And I had many years of being the person who would just spray and wipe my windshield whenever I pleased. I'm sorry. I've never thought about that before. Really? <laughs> yes. You're me circa two years ago. It's probably only because of the segment that I know that it angers people. I, yeah, I had no idea. I also never think about whether my car has anything on it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I only do the windshield thing if I'm like, oh, I can't see that well. Yeah. I would like to clean this. So now I, I don't, when's the proper time to do it? When I, you're driving, I just guess, not holding still? I guess when there's no one behind you. I don't know. I guess, yeah. I mean, how much does it really, Sarah, how much do you really get sprayed? Write in and let us know. Okay. Lane says, I have to lift up my boobs to see if I've gotten something on the lower half of my shirt. 
I'm trying to even understand the physics of this. Where are you putting your boobs to see the lower half of your shirt? Wouldn't like, are you, I don't have to do this. (laughs) I'm not endowed in that way, but I'm just trying to figure out like, if you're trying to see, you think you'd either lift your shirt up or are you pushing your boobs to the side? What do you think? Um, this is not the same, but a corollary. I frequently stand up to realize that I have under boob sweat um, that has happened. And I'm like, Branham, why didn't you just pull your shirt down? Pull your shirt down because then it wouldn't be in contact with the under boob? Yeah. Um, okay. Kate Ramble says, it perplexes me that retail workers try to talk to me when I have my earbuds in. It's the universal sign for leave me alone. It is the universal sign for that. I agree. I mean, though it's hard to see earbuds, but I am yes, somebody that's true. who I am. I, I am frequently the person who is being almost rude by having my earbuds in, like pulling them out at the last possible minute when I'm like in the line or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's we need to. What's her name? Kate. Kate. We need to accept that we're being the antisocial ones, and while we may get some benefit out of having the earbuds there. Sometimes people are going to to push through it. <laughs> They're going to interact regardless yeah. of, of the walls you try to put up. JMOs for Aeros says, fold sticky part of a post-it before throwing away or recycling it so it doesn't stick to the bin. Never That's just to smart. do that. I'm, I'm glad that he's sharing it with the world. Yeah. Where she is. Thank you. Uh, Heidi says, always tempted to buy that enormous jar of cheese balls, but I'm way too ashamed to actually pick it up or put it in the cart. I feel like go for it, Heidi. I loathe cheese balls. Really? Yeah. Where Where are you on Cheetos? Cheetos are fine, but like not my greatest passion. When it comes to crackers, I want the I want like a Cars water cracker or possibly matzah. I mean, I want cheese on it or I want something on top of it, but I want a minimalist cracker. I mean, that's really that is the bare minimum cracker wise. Yeah. Even a Ritz is an explosion of flavor compared to a car cracker or a matzah. Yeah. Would you? Like matzo or car cracker, just plain. I mean, sometimes yes. Not even a spritz of I can't believe it's not butter. I so hate I, I can't. I can't <gasps> imagine. What? I, no. How can you hate I can't believe it's not butter? But um, cars water crackers feel like magnificent. Like they're pretty fancy. It's like wasp matzo. Yeah, and it's also <laughs> what I imagine um, communion wafers are like. And I know that I'm completely wrong. So sometimes I'll be at a party and the cheese is gone, and I'll just play communion. Um, See, interesting. I imagine communion wafers as like. Like those sort of those like rice wafers that you sometimes get with Asian food. Oh, that's probably true. That are sort of somewhere between a cracker and styrofoam. Yeah, because they're very dissolvy, right? That's how I imagine it. Yes, um, but Cars water crackers are just so circular. But yeah, I mean, in this very special time of year, look, I'm a man who likes a nice matzo. All right, let's talk about this. Right. You hate? I can't believe it's not butter. Can't stand it in any of its forms. It really, yeah, yeah. Um, is it the flavor? Is it the texture? Is it? I mean, this is just it is anathema to me. It is both the flavor and the idea. Okay, Allison can't believe you. Don't I can't like believe camp- you can't. You don't like. I can't, can't believe. believe it's, it's I no. I okay. <laughs> well, because because you're like butter or nothing. Yes, I'm like butter or let's let's make another choice. Let's go in another direction. I appreciate it as something 
separate from butter. It's its own thing. Oh, uh, and I I respect that differentiation. People who need to understand that because some... I can believe it's not butter. It's very believable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just um, also like it. That's interesting. No, I was. Yeah. No. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Danielle Lynn says, open a customer support chat on a website. Inevitably leave the person hanging when I open a different tab and forget. Look, I've done that before. I've been surprised at how um, expedient, I think, is where I want to go with this. How well the little the customer support chat situation works. Right. There have been, I would say, 15 to 20% of times I'm like, I'm either dealing with an algorithm or a person whose English is not that strong. Right. And then like 80% of the time, it got done. Like Apple fucking took care yeah. of me. But that's the thing. I feel like even if you are dealing with an algorithm or someone in another country, it's still somehow your problem gets solved. Yeah. Because to me, I'm always, it always, like whenever I'm having an issue, I feel like opening a little window is not fast enough i need to i need i need to get on the phone well i, I seem to hate is, that yeah, and that's gonna be 20 minutes of hold music yes. where i feel like opening those chat windows like shit gets done that's what i'm saying it's i it might be the best way to deal with stuff okay let's see uh nick heidenreich says i don't follow college basketball to me gonzaga sounds like a euphemism for a big boob hashtag get a load of them gonzagas i'm with you what is the word we're thinking of gazanga yes it is that. So yes, Gonzaga. Gonzaga sounds uh, somewhat obscene and airlingus. <laughs> Very true. And lastly, Ryan Mulholland says, "Every once in a while, I look at my eyebrows and notice one hair that's twice as long as all the rest. How does that happen?" Yeah, I don't know. Oh God, yes, I can really identify with that. Also, as a human being who uses a thing to make my own head be shaved every day. There are just some things that happen on my ears or eyebrows that I really need to go and visit a stranger to take care of periodically. And do you do that? Yes. Also, one of the best things about working at Chelsea lately, once every two months, she would bring a lady in who would shape up everybody's eyebrows. With wax? With wax. It was amazing. Wow. Yes. I've never, I've worked at a place that had like massages are coming in, even though I don't remember being there that day, but I've never worked at a place that had eyebrow situation happening. One time she sent out an email saying that she was having a gynecologist come <laughs> and E sent an email and was like, no. <laughs> That's hilarious. Wow. Jeff and I used to work at a place. We did not get those kind of perks. No, we got free barbecue we got a lot of free pie there were, yeah we got a lot of free pie there was booze and there was food yeah booze and no gynecologist no gynecologist no pap smears no eyebrows no but a barbecue that's almost as soothing as a good massage <laughs> guy Branham, it was so nice having you it on was the lovely show meeting you guys thank you so much um Tell everyone where to find you and plug all your stuff. Talk Show the Game Show comes on True TV at 10 p.m. on Wednesdays. Please watch it. I'm also the host of Pop Rocket on Maximum Fun. Uh, and you should follow me on Twitter at Guy Branham. And Jeff, where can we find you? You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Colonel Jeff Fox. And if you like what you're hearing, which I'm going to assume you do, <laughs> subscribe. iTunes.com slash Allison Rosen. Leave us a nice comment, won't you? Uh, or click five stars. Both. They both help the show. Follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-N-B-F. Thank you guys so much for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know... 
show We had a good time 